0: Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the talks from the 2022 East End Conference that took place over the weekend of April 23rd and 24th at the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the heart of the East End of London. Lauren Davis is a researcher and historian of women's history the co-host of the history podcast *Transatlantic History Ramblings* with Lauren and Brian, and is a medieval studies master's student from Swansea in South Wales. She has, over the past few years, developed an interest in the stories of women across a broad spectrum of history, and their encounters with the criminal justice system of their period. She's spoken on the medieval prison system to the Metropolitan Police Heritage Society, and the relationship of the medieval jury with the Tower of London for the Whitechapel Society. Lauren's talk is entitled Jack the Ripper and the Contagious Disease Act.
1: So when I wrote this talk, it was after Hallie Wubenhold had released her book, The Five, but now as that issue has become greater, I feel that I should start my talk by just clarifying where I stand on that matter because Obviously, we're talking about the Contagious Diseases Act. We are talking about women that were prostitutes, that were accused of prostitution and examined for syphilis as part of that accusation. So, I do believe that the Whitechapel murder victims were prostitutes, that there is no reason to suspect otherwise. On the night that they were murdered, each one of them was in a situation where they were desperate for money, and it is a potential that one way the murderer got them to go with them is because he offered them a sum of money that not necessarily would have solved their entire problems but would have solved the immediate problem that they faced. To sort of judge them as not being prostitutes is something that is problematic because you can't talk in absolutes about their lives. When we talk about the, when we talk about later in my talk about um, what the Victorians viewed as prostitution, you will see that regardless of whether they sold sex or not, to their peers, to the contemporary society, they would have been viewed as prostitutes, or living the lives of prostitutes. So, what <clears> I <throat> think happened, um, and it's only my opinion, and I could be entirely wrong, is that when Hallie Hold was doing her well, that's my email address if you'd like to complain.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: is what she was hoping to find, when she wrote about the East End and when she wrote about the women of the East End, was she was hoping to find something similar to the brothels of Covent Garden. Something, I don't think she thought she would find a Harris list where they were all listed and talked about in regards to their beauty and their cleanliness, but I thought she would find that there was some sort of brothel which the women were associated with or working out of. But because she didn't find that i think this gave the narrative of them not being prostitutes impetus and this is how she got through it so to give you a bit of background on the um, the harris list um it was uh, published um from 1775 to 1795 um the most of these women were kept quite nicely by either the brothel keepers or by their um or, or by their lovers so we see a very big difference to the way that they operated, to the way that the, the victims of the Whitechapel murders operated. And again, because you, know, you don't find that, because you don't see it clearly, because I mean, you can't define it clearly, you do get something of, <coughs> um, of questions arising. But that doesn't mean that, you know, but for her to say that they weren't is wrong. And I think that's the issue, is the way that she has approached this has been wrong. And that's coming from a feminist. And I know there are a lot of historians that agree with her and that they weren't prostitutes. But that that is so, so irresponsible. And I'm happy to speak in that absolutely because mm-hmm. that is so irresponsible. Because the, it doesn't, because it takes away, I think what she was trying to do is create victims. And yes, they are victims of a murder, they're victims of a crime. But you can't sort of whitewash or sanitise a life. And they don't deserve that. And that's the thing. And I know that many of you in this room know that these, some of these ladies have descendants that still live. And they've visited meetings, they've visited some of your talks. And it's irresponsible to them. Because they're taking away a part of their ancestors' life. <coughs> good or bad, our ancestors who, who, who are who they are. You know, there are some parts in my ancestors' life which are uncomfortable, you know, but it's who they are. And without them being who they are, I wouldn't be who I am. And I think to try and take that away from them takes away something from their story. And I think the way that it's been tried to whitewash and changed would be a shock to them as well. I think this would all be a shock to them, to be quite honest, that we're still talking about them 100 or so years after their deaths. But you, know, we have a responsibility to their memory, and that includes talking about every part of their life. That includes, that includes the good and the bad. And they did what they did, not because they enjoyed it, but because they had to survive. And that is just my biggest bugbear of this whole situation that I <coughs> and hold is that there is a whitewashing. Of women's history, because their struggles of prostitution underlie struggles that thousands of women went through, and it takes away something from them too. It takes away something from women 's history, and that makes me so unbelievably angry that this part has now become a lot longer than it is written on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> so the problem. That we have, first of all, is the definition of the word prostitute. Um, in the Victorian period, it was a lot more vague. You could be considered a prostitute for not living a life that you were supposed to live, for living outside of social norms. And as we can see from this quote here. So this is um, from the British Library, and this is analysing literature in the 19th century. In the quote, quote, we see definitions and conditions that extend far beyond the more contemporary <coughs> notions of selling sex. If we take a look at some of the descriptions given of prostitution, we can see that they are ones that Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly fit. So the three main ones for me are living with a, with a man out of wedlock, illegitimate children. Well, that we don't know. We, you know, there could have been Infant mortality was very high, so that is that is one that doesn't necessarily fit. Or physical relationships for pleasure. So two out of the three, we can say with some certainty that these women enjoyed or had relationships that fit these things. So whether you like it or not, Harry, Hallie Rubenhold, whether they sold sex or not, by the Victorian standard, they're prostitutes. So this... It it gives us a better insight into some of the figures that we see as well. So in 1817, we see a claim of 80,000 prostitutes, which is staggering. And we know that in 1791, that figure was estimated to be 50,000. But in those years, you know, you have migration, you have young women becoming adults and starting to live their own lives. So again, though it's just an estimate... And we need to make sure that we just say that it's an estimate, you know, because we have that responsibility when we're retelling the story to interested people. So, but, um, so that's an entirely different argument. So, uh, so again, you know, part of that figure were some women that were just merely living outside of the social expectations as well. But we're getting those figures from men as well. And as you'll see, the Contagious Diseases Act was a law created by men for the protection of men. So, but what would be interesting for me is to try and work out, if at all possible, if any of that figure related to male prostitution. Because that too was going on as well in the Māori Houses and probably casually as the women were doing it as well. Because men faced the same, the same situations of destitution as the women did. So, this relates to the Contagious Diseases Act because it was a way of regulating prostitution. Part of the argument that it was trying to legalise prostitution <coughs> because these women were being <coughs> were being regulated in areas in port areas of towns <coughs> and invasively examined. If the police, which were were named the spy police because they were undercover and their job was predominantly to work out who was a prostitute and who wasn't. So the attitudes towards prostitution during this period were condemnation, regulation, and redemption. So within the Act, we see all these three being these values being encompassed. Um, so, <coughs> the attitudes are, so with the first one, condemnation, not only would a society look down on them, so that would include things like <coughs> if they went to get some assistance, if they went to some charity boards, which were run privately by Women, they wouldn't necessarily get the uh, (coughs) money that they needed because of the way that they lived their life. So that's how they would end up in the workhouse. So the workhouse would always be the last resort. But they would be judged by the police. I know that we know the stories of women that were just standing and talking in the street. I can't remember the case off the top of my head, but there is a case of a woman that was accused of being a prostitute and then she and her, her employer actually fought this in court because she wasn't, she was just standing and talking in the street. So there is a confusion about, you know, the type of women. And it was it, in terms of the Contagious Diseases Act, the women that were being stopped and examined were a lower class women. They were women that had cause to be on the streets, you know, whether they were working or just walking around, you know, that's the type of women that was being taken off the street. So once they were identified, they would be arrested and examined, often by force, by a doctor. We could also view this as part of regulation too. If they were found to have syphilis, there was no questions asked about where they got it from, which meant that the women that contracted the diseases from their husbands were assumed to be prostitutes. And that's a big thing. I was talking to Robert Anderson yesterday, (laughs) and he said that is one of the things that he would say was the biggest problem, is that husbands bringing it home to their wives who would then you know if the husband was in the military in a way and they hadn't had money for a little bit of time having to make up their income they would go out and you know be a prostitute themselves and then that's how it would end up being spread so for him it's not so much the women that were the issue and I agree with him it was the you know there was no looking at where it came from originally and it was not necessarily the women that were spreading it they were part of it but it was men because there was no legal obligation for a man to be examined for syphilis it was only the woman so all the blame was put on the women so after that they were then taken to either dedicated wings of mental hospitals, uh, hospitals or luck hospitals and this would be and then we move on to redemption so um this is a bit tricky because, yes, they were redeemed in terms they were tr- in the terms that they were treated and successfully cured of the illness and then released into society. But redemption, as we know with Victorians, is a very tricky concept because they didn't help them not end up back in the position that they found themselves in the first place. The Contagious Diseases Act was specifically aimed at the armed forces. Um, in that regard, prostitution was seen as a necessarily ev- uh, necessary evil as the majority of them were unmarried. While the measures of the Act and its amendments saw increasingly tighter restrictions against the prostitutes, it did not protect them from their clients giving them diseases. While the women were forcibly subjected to intimate examinations, as I mentioned, no <coughs> provisions were made to examine or guarantee the health of their clients. <coughs> the Act could be described as reactionary and put in order to cease the spread of the diseased disease through the armed forces, which at the time was endemic amongst their ranks. The act was first passed in the first first instance in 1864, with further extensions in 1866 and 1869, with it finally being repealed in 1886, so two years before the murder. That's when the act was repealed. So these women had been living with the threat of being taken off the streets, and then they were taken off the streets by being murdered so as you can see it is it was always something that they did with an element of fear or an element of something could go dreadfully wrong and they wouldn't come home they wouldn't return to their lodging houses whether it was by a policeman or whether it was being assaulted so you can see you know it is it kind of because they have always sort of ...had to deal with that. You can understand how it was easy for them to go off with somebody. Because there was always that possibility that they could be summoned by a policeman. Now that's not to say that I think that the murderer was a policeman, but it was easy for them... ...if somebody looked official or if somebody was a client, that they could be sort of taken to one side... ...and not know. And that, and again, this brings me back to how angry I am with our Harry Rubenhold, because even we have... Women saying that they would rather go out on the streets and risk being murdered than not do it because of what it meant, or what, you know, that they could go hungry. And that, that's the thing. They were living with so much fear you know, from the government and from... It, I don't think it was the police's fault because they were told that they had to do this, but they weren't necessarily prepared. And I think work needs to be done on that as well about how the police were prepared, because I couldn't find that they were prepared at all to deal with these women, or, you know, what they were what they were supposed to do, because some of these women were subject, subjected to the examinations through force, and <coughs> it carried a big risk as well. If you didn't agree to be examined, you could face imprisonment, and that was between three and six months. It does, as the acts progress, <coughs> the sentences do get... Stricter, and if you refused to be examined, then you faced up to six months of hard labour. <coughs> so, so you know this wasn't something that they did <coughs> casually. This is something that they do did calculating the risks, and it seems that the risks were a necessary evil for the to survive. So, that's why I think that the contagious disease. Diseases Act has an, a legacy and has impacted the way that the Whitechapel murders themselves were dealt with as a society. You know, I can't answer the questions <coughs> fully in this talk but can hopefully by discussing them produce an angle that we may look at the subject differently. Hopefully to better understand wider socii- social ideology and conditions that we may not have considered previously that affected not only the demographic that the women came from but the police too. So This is not from the... I couldn't find a picture of undercover officers from the 1880s, so this is from a bit later. So I think it's from 1911, according to my notes. So the spy police, as they became to know, were designated (coughs) as a separate from the day-to-day police. They were plainclothes policemen, were placed into areas that were marked as being potential areas for the (coughs) the civilists. So it was normally places where there were garrisons or places where um, predominantly it seems to be the Navy... That was causing the issue. Um, or areas that were close to barracks where brothels <coughs> would naturally start businesses. During the time of the act, as well as, as arresting people and ensuring that those suspected of prostit- prostitution register with the police, it also gave them the powers to investigate and find out who was prostitutes in the wiser area. This led the police officers that were engaged in the investigation being known as the spy police, because that's what they were essentially doing, they were spying on the population. Um, Yet it does not indicate that that there were indeed efforts to be specific (coughs) and targeted that those that were caught in the act. Though you know we do have anecdotal evidence that uh, some women were. In looking further into the Act, I found that the Parliament UK website to be a handy tool in looking at the attitudes of lawmakers while they were debating and discussing the Contagious Diseases Act. um, What the Contagious Diseases Act in humans would look like. It also helps us see the different trains of thoughts that were involved in the <coughs> discussions and we see that above all it was the morality of the nation that was ultimately at stake. So we also have unofficial groups such as the Ladies National Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act, um, established in 1869 by Elizabeth Walsenholm and Josephine Butler. Um, because they felt that the act was um, legalising prostitution and therefore exploiting the women that found themselves in a position to be prostituting themselves. So, you know, forcing women stricken by poverty to turn away from their morals and take up prostitution because it was giving them an impetus to because they could just register with the police and, you know, everything would be Okay. We could argue that this tr- is true as it was very similar to the French regulation policy of isolate, regulate and patrol. So again, you know, even in a French society, that is very similar to the first, you know, the, the attitudes of the British. Yet from the feelings of Parliament, we can see that the intention was somewhat different and that it was means of con- means to control the disease. The LNA was a group that acted in parallel to the official committee. This is because women were not allowed to, to join the official committee. In 1870, the LNA published an article in the Daily News which detailed what they felt was unlawful about the acts. They felt that, as far as women are concerned, they remove every guarantee of personal security which the law has established and held sacred, and put their reputation, their freedom and their persons absolutely in the power of the police. And also because it is unjust to punish the sex who are the victims of vice and leave and punish the sex who are the main cause, both of vice and its dreaded consequences. And we consider the liability to arrest, force medical treatment and where to resisted imprisonment with hard labour to these, to which these acts subject women are the punishment of the most degrading kind. So this, in 1870, this article has a lot of prominent women put their name to it. Um, and that included Florence Nightingale, Harriet Martineau and Mary Carpenter. The LNA did face opposition and did find it difficult to have meaningful discussions with male politicians. The experts of Josephine, Josephine Butler to try and engage these men are indeed worthy of a talk in their own right. I must stress that this is not just seen as a situation that affected London and the South. In 1866, there were proposals to extend the laws north of the country, It was also in the year that there were proposals to extend the restrictions to the whole population and not just in response to the rises of cases cases of syphilis in the military. This again shows the severity of the epidemic and the heavy-handed techniques that the government were happy to use to enforce them. Though unlike countries such as India where similar acts were enforced on the entire population, the British acts did indeed stay strictly limited to the military district. We can see that this quote encapsulates the aims and the outcomes of the act. What is interesting is that there were provisions made for what was to happen should a woman resist arrest and the examination. It brings us back to the loose definitions of prostitution that would have made the work of the police difficult. We see in the quote that there would have been that they could not have taken any action without sufficient evidence or without a reason to believe. These are not clearly defined as we would like. And as an open, to, uh, an open to interpretation as the definition of prostitution was. Again, we could argue that this was open to the moral perception of a woman's life. What is further interesting is the quote in this quote that if that if a woman is found to be ill, she is to be imprisoned for up to three months. This is later to extend it to one year. And the amendments made to the Act in 1869. These hospitals were known as lock hospitals and had been. Ex- had been experienced in treating venereal diseases since 1746, and some of them dated back to India in 1797. So that isn't a lock hospital in the East End. That's a London lock hospital in High Park Corner. So um, it, there are some anecdotal evidence to suggest that it wouldn't just be in that, that the woman wouldn't just be put in a hospital that was closest to her. She could end up anywhere in the country because. I have spoken to some people um, online who say that they know of people that were just disappeared off the streets one day and ended up across the country coming back about 18 months later, having been taken to a lock hospital. So the term lock hospital has its origins in the leprosyum, which was which, as the name suggests, were were the places of isolation where lepers were kept usually in restraints. The example pictured is in Hyde Park con- Corner, and the illustration dates to 1831. These lock hospitals have a strong affinity to the, against the military, which we see from, from one being established in 1580, 1858 by the Admiralty in Plymouth, and a further one in 1863 in Portsmouth. So, again, the Navy. <laughs> we also have evidence of them being used as far as Hong Kong, with a lock hospital in operation from 1858 to 1894 to deal with venereal disease there does not seem to be in what i've read a preparedness for this in the preparedness for the talk a desire to find out how the women became ill you know who were they saying there doesn't you know there doesn't seem to be um an attempt to trace back you know who they've been in contact with which further solidifies my statement earlier that there was no protection for sex workers against their clients or who made them ill or if in Indeed, they were selling sex and had been made ill by their husbands. It is possible... Uh... This mirrors in part some of the attitudes that we find during the Whitechapel murder, especially in one of the letters reporting to have been from the murderer where they described themselves as being down on pause, in that women, by by either the murderer or the press imagining of the murderer, was blaming the women themselves for the predicament that they found themselves in the fact was is that the disease was not always the fault of women, and there were a group of men, including soldiers, who were being faithful to their wives, providing an in-in for disease to further enter the family home. So that is not to say that there were not women that padded out the family income from casual prostitution or unfaithful to their husbands and partners. It would be problematic for me to assert that it was just simply the man's fault, where there would be instances where it, was, where it would be instances through the actions of the man. It was, as we know, far more complicated than that. But whereas we now may take it as a case-by-case approach, the Act itself was more blanketed and directly accused and focused on women. Noting the acts and their subsequent amendments never made it a legal requirement for men or the armed forces to face examination. What is interesting and pulls us from the point of it is the reaction we also see recorded on the Parliament <coughs> UK website. Um, and that is this one. So what we learn from this quote is that it was always on the cards for the women involved to be regulated and in a way redeemed no pressure was put on the men. what keeping public women means is that there were thoughts and discussions of, in making prostitution legal purely for the gratifications of soldiers and sailors which shows that while the women were doing was seen by contemporary standards to be immoral and problematic the needs of men were seen as valid and necessary by some. yet it was finally seen by a majority as a proposal that was dis, was a disgrace to the country. In this, we can see a mirror to the attitudes that were still around during white murders. Men were not the problem, and men do not seem to have been guided away from sleeping with prostitutes. The emphasis seems to be the fact that it was because there were prostitutes that there was demand, again, something that is problematic. Though this thought is to do with the way that women were seen, the Victorian women or the women of the 19th century were seen as the moral centre of the home. It was during this period (coughs) that we see the roles of men and women becoming clearly defined. If we think back to earlier centuries and to the roles of women, we find them working alongside their male relatives and it's during this time we start to see the different spheres. To quickly explain the concept of gender spheres, this idea focused on that men and women inhabited in a manner of speaking different worlds and that they would only come together for breakfast and their evening meal. Men would follow more masculine pursuits and women would follow what was considered to be appropriate feminine pursuits. There would be no mixing, and not not following this prescribed route was seen as socially and often morally problematic. While women were seen physically weaker than men, it was during this time they started to be seen as morally stronger. Therefore, in tempting men away using sex, they were seen as failing as women. In entering pubs and walking the streets at night, the women of Whitechapel were entering a masculine sphere. They were entering a sphere and a position that the majority of women did not enter. And this resulted in such women being labelled not only as problematic, as fallen, and then subsequently as prostitutes. Though this is a broad generalisation, these women were often not as immoral, and were not, sim- and were simply not content with the life that society wanted for them. Though because of the views that they often found, they were, because of so- views of society, they often found that they were not welcome, and through becoming outcasts, they were pushed into the roles such as prostitute, as a means to survive. Something that the LNA d- attempted to point out during the opposition of the Act, as they did not see the prostitutes as criminals but victims in need of protection. <coughs> what we see in the course of not just the murders that were relating to Jack the Ripper is a culmination of feeling that had been brewing since the inception of the Act in 1864, an act that saw women being abducted off the street, forcibly examined, and then imprisoned. There was no thought placed into where the outbreak was coming from, or if the speculum that was not, or if the speculum was not sanitized cor- correctly, could itself be a source of women catching the disease. What the main takeaway that I hope I would like the audience, to, sorry, what the main takeaway that I would like the audience to have after this presentation is a thoughtfulness in how we can use or apply the ide- ideology of laws and resti- restrictions that, though happened prior to the murder, still had an impact on the society that affected the Contag- Contagious Diseases Act. As we've seen briefly today, I've had a very distinct impact on the way that the five victims of Jack the Ripper were treated, not just in their death, but in the months and years prior to their death, and the way that, that they were talked about in the media of the late 1880s, and in some respects, the way that we discuss them today. The white ch- Chapel that the victims knew would have been impacted by the act, it too was close to the Tower of London, which held barracks. We know that Martha Tarbrum was seen with a soldier on the night of her death. So we know that the women of Whitechapel during the decades of the Contagious Diseases Act were under, the wa- were under watch. What the Act did, in my opinion, was worsen the opinions of the areas that were targeted. They create rather than remedy the hot spots forcing people to pe- be pent in. They perpetuate the negative images of these areas as dens of vice and the women or the people of the district would not have the ability to remedy their community. In short, women of this social class were viewed as prostitutes, and that is what they became. So we can see why, why that people want to revise and restore the personal histories of the women, because the term had become blanketed. Though this approach is misguided, as we have, seen, as we have to evaluate the, uh, evaluate the evidence that we have. What has been outlined that there is a very different meaning to the word that in the word prostitute, in that it encompasses a wider description. There is much evidence in the statement of their peers, too, that even on a casual basis, the victims of Jack the Ripper were sex workers. In some respects, our reluctance to label them is down to our concerns that concerns over their victimhood, that we are too unable to consider the, the way that they themselves would wish to be spoken about. They themselves would not wish <coughs> to be solely remembered for being victims, which is not something that we do. When our field works at its best, it's when we discuss their stories as a whole, which does include the prostitution. They were strong women, the majority of them were already young adults and would have been heard the stories that emerged from the Contagious Diseases Act. In one of her pamphlets, Josephine Butler asked a prostitute to define her feelings on her encounters with men. There was something eerie about it when I read it, and it could have been said by any of the Whitechapel victims. It's men. Only men from the first to the last we have to do with. To please a man I did wrong at first, then I was flung out flung about from man to man. Men, police, lay hands on us. By men we are examined, handled, doctored. In the hospital it is a man again who makes prayers and reads the Bible for us. We had up before we had up before magistrates who are men, and we never get out of the hands of men till we die. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Oh, I'll stand. Okay. <laughs> Thank
3: you. That was absolutely fantastic, it really was. Um, I think the um my Halle Rubenhold sort of takeaway thing is when she says that the denies that the victims were prostitutes, I think it's done to sort of protect them from the name of prostitution yes. when it's the shame of poverty. Yes. Which should be it's like no no no, they're they good they good women of reputation. It's not the reputation that's important to what created that. The fear of the workhouse
1: would have been more yeah. for them than actually yeah. the act of prostitution. The prostitution was there to keep them out. Or yeah, it well,
3: was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a moral decline because they had to prostitute themselves at all. I think that's what she's trying to say. It's, yes. No, no, they're all fine upside. Because they're upstanding, they also have to be starving. I feel as
1: well, it's because of the way that we view victimhood or the way certain portions of society view victimhood. If you don't fit the pure white, you know, yeah. fairy tale version of what a victim should look like, yeah. then... <laughs> it's problematic, you can't sort of defend them. And I think she was looking for a way to defend the women
3: when they don't need defending. No, 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 I think that's very true. I think, you know, we're we're talking about this in in terms of Victorian times, but I've only seen the Barlow and What's Jack the Ripper thing Mm -hmm. once on YouTube, and there's a scene in that, I don't know if anyone remembers this, where there's an old Catherine I think it's Catherine there, was here at this time of night, and they literally rolled their eyes. Oh. (coughs) At that time of night, then. As if it's she's the issue here, not... The fact that there's someone around. Um, I've rumbled up. Many questions, I imagine.
1: Yes, so, thank you very much. That was fantastic. Um, the Act was rescinded two years before, yes. 1886, so they were aware yes, they that that was rescinded, it should have been. Yes. And also, you did mention... I mean, I heard this, how talk about her book, about five women, and she did say it was the interpretation at the time of the term streetwalker. That's that was it was interpreted differently at that time. A streetwalker was a streetwalker, wasn't a prostitute. That's what she defined it as. And the other point was, you said that they these women would be cured. We, the cure didn't come about in antibiotics. In the no, system. but it, it, again, it would have been the perception of the era that they were cured. So not our perception. Because, of yeah, they weren't cured. No, but it goes dormant, doesn't it? Yes, but they didn't understand. But the Victorians didn't understand that. Okay,
2: thank you. Hang on, let me think about this carefully, but the Act itself. Did it apply to the whole country and they only chose to enforce it in certain areas? Or was it you would say this will apply within the the city of so and so because it's got a military garrison?
1: It was they set up districts where it would apply, yeah. Yeah. Susan? Without yeah. wishing to get on um, too delicate a detail. Yeah. Um was it just syphilis that they were looking for or Chondria. what was the definition that they're doing? Is it like gonorrhea, you know, genital herpes? What what are they all getting tired with the same brush? Yeah. What was the there? It, <coughs> it's hard with the same brush, but the ma- the majority of them seem to be looking from from the reports that I read were syphilis. <coughs> so it would have been anything that would have looked ankey yeah yes. <laughs> manifest. yeah
3: manifest is yeah uh, where did this term unfortunates come from and what's the difference between that and, and did the bits always actually call prostitutes or unfortunates or both? or is there a subtle difference between
1: the two I'm terms? not too sure. <laughs> um, just a euphemism. I it? think it's just a yeah, yeah.
2: It's it's a euphemism that they use euphemism from the press more Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think I was, I haven't looked into this in, in sufficient detail, but when you look at the use of the word of the term unfortunate in the newspapers at the time, I I have not so far been able to find a man described as that unfortunate. Yes. Doesn't one of the witnesses just I'm a widow and an unfortunate so they're picking up the terms themselves yes. to use it. Yeah. Well, there on. Um, on a census, was, was that sometimes put down as what that person was? I think so. As an unfortunate. I think I've, I think I've, I've seen on I think the Obviously, there were poor men, but poor men never seem to be described in no, the no, newspapers no, no. as unfortunate. So that is something that only.
1: It's not just <coughs> semantics. It's
2: <coughs> That's just semantics, isn't it, really? If you're down and out or you're unfortunate, you're just into semantics here. Yeah. 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 But, you know, the in the way that um, that you're describing <coughs> is, in, as, as your quote shows, if, like written by men, enforced by men, and, and, yeah. and, and you know, it's and then repealed in 1986. well, by the time, you know, you roll the clock 20 years on, then you've got the Captain Nelson Act during the uh, during the struggle for suffrage, for women's suffrage, where, I mean, it's just like you have to, two seconds after the sentence just to think about this. You know, the prison authorities, if there was someone who was starving themselves in prison on hunger strike, the prison authorities were allowed to let them get ill almost to the point of death. Then they were to release them and then when they got and but if they hadn't completed their sentence, the police would just go yes. and get them again when they were feeling a bit better and ready to strike understrike, strike, put them back in prison to complete that yeah. sentence.
1: They would sent a letter to appear at the gates of a prison at a certain time of day and then often chosen <coughs> to.
2: Yeah. So there's really no there's no route out of that no. for, for women. And again and again sort of pre suffering So yeah, it will come under the like, category of violence,
1: Suffrage was rumbling it on around yeah. that time because you do have people like Richard Pankhurst that are fighting for women to have better rights in divorces and everything. So suffrage is is kind of one branch of fighting for better rights for women. But the vote for women was very much... Well, at least it was what Emmeline and Christabel wanted It at one point was that it would be top-down. So yeah. you would first of all have the upper-class ladies that would have it and then they would uh, fight for working-class working women to have it, which sort of seems a bit strange that we'd have those depositions yeah. of working-class women yeah. go to Parliament, but that's one of the reasons But largely
2: in terms of legislation, yeah. you're damned if you doing your damned. Yes. I think you lot of that the imperial views, there's a fundamental difference in the nature of women and men, and that's what explains it. When women are morally
3: weaker, it's their own fault. I'm not
1: speaking for myself. No, no I understand. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. It's,
2: it's, <laughs> well, it's, yeah. it's the original saying, I'll give Women the original same, yeah. And, yeah. There was a, a review. Um, so the ongoing government inquiry into institutionalised child abuse. There was a sort of interim publication, uh, month or two ago, um, looking at four or five different local authorities and their social care um, child protection um, arrangements. One of them was Tower Hammond. Um, and the review commented that, you know, you had, for example, if you had uh, 15-year-old girls who were, you know, spending a lot of time with older men and, you know, receiving gifts, which, you know, is what you look out for when you work with kids. Like, you know, suddenly they've got a phone or trainers. Like, oh, where's that? And you know, what social workers are writing down, you know, so-and-so is putting themselves at risk. But they're the victim, they're not putting themselves... No, them. it's the, la- the language we use is... We, really we still do it. We tend yeah. to think women criminals are worse than men because women aren't meant to be like that. We still do it. Yeah. It's, it's easy to, to misuse language uh, to give the, the impression that people who are being exploited are in fact just kind of asking for it or, or, or initiating it by themselves.
3: I think it's like you've got the whole sort of like the
0: whole Myra Hindley
3: and
1: Ian Brady aspect of that, where uh, you, you get sort of Ian Brady almost dismissed because he's mentally ill, but um, Myra Hindley's always vilified much worse than Ian Brady because of it's seen that a female doesn't how can it that should have you know maternalistic in, instincts and how can they kill. Children.
3: Well, let's bring it up to date with Ghislaine, Maxwell. Yeah. yeah. Any more questions? Lauren, thank you very much. Thank, you. thank, thank you. you.
0: RipperCast would like to thank all of the speakers at the 2022 East End Conference for allowing us to release this year's presentations. And a special thank you to the organizers, Carl Kopak, Andrew Firth, Mark Ripper, and Adam Wood. If you would like more information on the East End Conference, you can join their group on Facebook or follow us here at RipperCast and we'll keep you updated. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.